Thank you for tuning into our Podbean subscription. We hope that you enjoy the message and we trust that God will speak to your heart. If you would like to sow into the ministry of Rebirth, please feel free to do so. You will find our banking details along with our PayFast link in the sermon description. Now, let's get straight into this week's message. He reigns from heaven above with of the Lord here this morning. If he didn't bless us another day, we'd still have the rest of our lives to be grateful. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The Lord is good and His mercy endures forever. And it's His goodness that brings men to repentance. We don't need to scare you of of hell and wrath. You just need to look at His goodness. That should be enough this morning. Amen. Just look around you. Look at your life. You should have been dead long time ago. The devil should have taken you out a long time ago. But he kept you. And here you are. Lay in your lungs, clothes on your back, food on your table, a roof over your head. We're thankful this morning, Lord. We are so thankful. We've come into your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I said, hallelujah. He is enough. Family is enough. He's always been enough. He's always been enough. In him we live, we move, and we have our being. He said, I am the vine. You are the branch. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. And apart from me, you can do nothing. You 
can do nothing without you. Absolutely nothing. Without him, that very chair you sitting on would decompose. Without him, your very life would disintegrate. He holds all things together by the word of his power. Stars and galaxies. He holds together by the word of his power. Amen and amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You may take your seats. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you so much, Chado, for that testimony. You can see Chad's trimming, can't you? <laughs> you know, uh, someone sent me this joke uh, from Peter Maritzburg. And since there are a few Durbanites and uh, PMBers here this morning, I'd like to tell you a little joke. Maritzburg apparently is the only city in the world to have a McDonald's in Burger Street. <laughs> and a hospital in Payne Street <laughs> and Liverpool jerseys in Manchester Road. <laughs> Amen. I'm born proud from Sleepy Hollow. Amen. Uh, there are a number of you that have celebrated birthdays this week. Happy birthday. I think Jasmine, um, she celebrated this week as well. I know Olivia, you guys in the house. Don't have a meat babalas. <laughs> and um, Ileana as well. And um, Alison. Alison's birthday today. Where's, where's Ali? She's in the children's church. When you see uh, Ali, just please wish her happy birthday. Amen. Amen. Turn at me, will you, to the book of Revelation. Um, you know, Aaron, I was uh, wrestling with the Lord about this because um, I don't usually usually do this and I don't like to do this um, and I know you mentioned to me that uh, you were running a 21 kilometer marathon yesterday and I said Lord I'm not going to give these kind of words and impressions but then he reminded me of the words he gave to Laodicea and Sardis he said Tell Aaron he's my marathon man. You his marathon man. He said, run the race with patience. And whenever you feel weary, know that I am the living water. I will refresh you, I will strengthen you, and I will be with you to the end. Amen. Glory. Glory. So just a quick recap, the book of Revelation, for those of you who don't know, we are in the book of Revelation, tackling the beasts and dragons that John saw. And as you know, John, the beloved, is an aged disciple by this time, the son of Zebedee, also known as a disciple that Jesus loved. He authored the Gospel of John, the epistles of John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, by the time he received this revelation, he was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel and denouncing the imperial cult. There's an ongoing debate about the time that this revelation was received and recorded. 
some debate between AD 66 plus minus, some AD 90. Most of the historical records point to AD 90 during the time when Caesar Domitian uh, uh, reigned during Rome. His reign was described as barbaric. His reign was described as tyrannical. Historians stated that towards the end of Domitian's reign in Rome, there was more chaos in the cultural and social spheres, spheres of the Roman Empire than any other time prior. Furthermore, we are informed that Domitian built a temple in Ephesus and demanded that sacrifices and worship be offered to him since he claimed to be God. Rome had a special intolerance for Christians in particular. The longer you walk with God, you'll begin to understand that the spirit of this world has an intolerance for Christians. They'll tolerate the Buddhist. They'll tolerate the atheist. They'll tolerate Islam. But they will never tolerate the Christian. Rome had an intolerance for Christians partially because of the Orthodox Jews that instigated Rome against Christians. What made the fiery trials exceedingly difficult for the Christians was that Caesar demanded worship and he demanded that you deny Jesus and that you confess him Lord. If you don't confess him Lord, you are seen as a public enemy of Rome and you could be publicly executed. We've got things soft here in South Africa, family. Very soft. This era of Christians experienced the most diabolical forces of the imperial cult. It was Gaius, Caligula, Nero, and Domitian, these three emperors that had vainly claimed themselves to be gods and they gave rise and strength and force to the imperial cult and a surge of expanding persecution spread throughout the whole known world and the Christians were at the center of it. What is the purpose of the book of Revelation? Simply this, to give encouragement to the people of God during a time of severe persecution and to also call them to be faithful and remain faithful. Now this morning, in typical style, we'll be taking a little off-ramp and we'll be doing a case study on church hurt. Since we're talking about seven churches, we will never be able to fully cover the discussion this morning. I'll just share a few thoughts with you. Um, So don't walk out here and say, hey, pastor didn't address this, A, B, C, D. The best way I can describe church hurt for you is that it is a weapon of Satan that he uses to undermine both the potential of a local church and to derail the spiritual walk of the believer. It affects both the local church and it affects both the individual. Dior stated that church hurt occurs when pain, whether physical or emotional, 
results from the actions or decisions associated with someone in a church. It can be pastor to member, it can be member to member, and it can be member to pastor. Sometimes church hurt happens when well-meaning but misguided and insensitive Christians do or say something in the wrong way. Sometimes church hurt happens when well-meaning people say the right thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way. Sometimes church hurt happens when ill-meaning and immature carnal Christians say the wrong thing intentionally in the wrong way. It was Brandon Bailey who further stated that everywhere you have a gathering of people, there will be differences. It's inevitable. So the definition of church is broad and it can be broadly applied. Church hurt can be aggravated by a few things. Firstly, when there is no forgiveness shared amongst people. When grievances and issues are not communicated. And thirdly, when these matters and issues are not brought before leadership to discuss and resolve. What's important to consider, according to Brandon Bailey, was that when church hurt occurs, we must ask these questions. Were principles and agreements violated? If this is not the premise that we use to define church hurt, then we are at risk of labeling every difference between individuals as church hurt. He further goes on to state that we are living in a time when the culture of the day glorifies the victim. And the easiest way to get attention in the 21st century is to claim victimhood. A healthy church is not free from church hurts and differences. Can I say that again? A healthy church is not free from differences or church hurts, but has established a culture where people can bring forth their issues and grievances and where there is a commitment to resolve legitimate concerns emphasis on legitimate (laughs) the travesty around church that i've seen over the years is this that by the time the leadership gets to hear that a member is offended the offender the the offended member has long time left and shared his hurts with half the church and like in any in any relationship Everything fails at the point of communication. And when grievances and issues are not brought before in an open, loving uh, platform and space, then it doesn't give everybody a chance to get the full context. What are the causes of church hurt and conflict? Pride, gossip, Spiritual, emotional immaturity, abuse of power from leadership, personality differences. What advice can I give to those who are looking to overcome church hurt? Firstly, you need to take everything to God in prayer. 
bring it before the Lord. He said, cast your cares upon me for I care for you. Yes. Secondly, you need to keep your mind in God's word and in his will. Second, thirdly, don't allow bitterness to enter into your heart. Yes, amen. You can be the victim of a legitimate hurt and allow offense to draw you away from Christ. Yes. Don't allow this to happen. Amen. And I'm sure many of you who are in relationships now know what I'm talking about, that you sometimes feel like you're paying this for the sins of a past boyfriend that your wife dated, you know, or a daddy that ran away, you know. Get over it. Sometimes we bring that baggage into a relationship. Don't allow bitterness to enter your heart. The Bible says the root of bitterness defiles many. We also need to bring our issues before the offender. Whether it's member to member, member to pastor, leadership, leader, uh, vice versa. Whether it's member to member offense, I want you to listen carefully. Eh? As brothers and sisters in God's family, you can bring your concerns in an honest and loving way to the person who offended you without having to always involve leadership. That's what mature people do. And so leadership doesn't always need to be at the conversation unless the individual is unrepentant. Then we apply the Matthew 18 principle. You can go and read that when you get home. Another word of advice in overcoming church hurt is pursue, and listen very carefully, pursue the holiness you hope for in others. Imagine being offended by someone for the very thing that somebody else is offended with you for. Imagine that. So pursue holiness in the same area of issue you have a problem with. Or she, 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 she just said whatever she wanted to say and then think about what I'm going through. And you did the same thing. Whether it's a few months down the line. That's why we need to pursue holiness. Church hurt or no church hurt. The local church is still God's plan for the world. Amen. I don't care what you say. Trust that God will lead you to a church where there is godly leadership and a loving culture and where there is open dialogue. And the last thing I will say uh, around church hurt is that the church is a family. Yeah. Don't we step on each other's toes? Yeah. Yeah. Are you always smiling with hubby dearest? No. <laughs> and when it's that time of the month, is it always smiling? She's going to that time of the month. I made a joke to the guys outside. I said, just before I preached last week, the wife was angry. She stepped on my toes, and when I got you to the poop, I felt like, you let me run away. <laughs> Are your kids always pleasant? No. <laughs> Are there some serious issues between husband and wife that you work on? 
to resolve? Yes. We are a family. First Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Means to endure long. Love is kind. Love does not dishonor. And love is not easily angered. Some of us are too quick-tempered when it comes to ch church hurt. Amen. Amen. I feel like saying another prayer this morning. <laughs> oh, Lord, why did you lead me down this road? Okay. Revelations 1, verses 9 to 20. I'll encourage you. Go back. Listen to Revelations uh, 1, the introduction we did. Uh, it was more informative. It's probably more informative than today's message will be. I gave some guidelines on how you interpret uh, the book of Revelation, uh, what to look for uh, with this uh, symbolic language. Um, but this morning we are going to discuss the seven churches. You can actually preach the seven churches over seven weeks, but we're not going to do that. But I want you to go home, read through um, what Christ spoke over these churches and make it your meditation. While they were addressed to churches, they are applicable not only to local churches, but to the individual. Yes. Yes. So let's start from verse 9. We are still in the introduction section of Revelation. And the word of God reads as follows. I'm reading from the ESV translation. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle called, island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write that which you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Titira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
And I said last week, and I'm going to say it again this morning, <coughs> that what we learn from the opening chapters of Revelation is that God is not silent when the church is facing its challenges and when the church is going through its persecution. And that proves true for you and for me. God is never silent when we are going through our challenges and when we face our trials. But what's interesting to note is how God responds to the trials and challenges we face. Because how he responded to John and to the church was that he spoke to John powerfully in a series of apocalyptic visions. Nothing brings more comfort and direction and strength in times of difficulty like the Word of God. Perhaps one of the most strangest phenomena I'm trying to understand is that when we are going through a rough time and difficult times, why do we stay away from church? Shouldn't you be in a place where you are able to hear the Word of God? Where you are exposed to the Word of God? Because sometimes the only thing we have in a difficult season is a word from God. And this tendency I'm still trying to diagnose and resolve. Sometimes you can go through hell and high water, but if you have a word from God, you know everything is going to be okay. If He said, I am with you, you know that you're going to come out on the other side of the fire. And I mentioned this last week when, when Paul was praying for the stone of Satan to be removed. He said he prayed three times earnestly. The Lord didn't remove it. The Lord just said to him, my grace is sufficient. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. All he needed was a word from the Lord. Amen. And that's all you need in your life. If he doesn't deliver you from it. He'll take you through it. But He'll add some encouragement on the way. He'll add some direction on the way. And so in verse 9, we see John introduce himself to the churches as a brother and a partner in the tribulation. And he tells us that he was exiled to the island of, of Patmos on account for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John was not on a holiday. John was not on a one-stop luxury cruise to Santorini or Bora Bora or to the Maldives. No, John was exiled to a small rocky island in the Aegon Sea where the criminals of Rome were banished and where they would serve prison terms under the harshest of conditions. Keener tells us and states that during the reign of Domitian, Many people of a lower social status were executed, enslaved, and then exiled to the mines. And they were often thrown into gladiatorial combat where they would be fed to wild beasts. But given the fact that John was old and aged, 
he may have been exiled to Patmos on account of his age. John makes reference to the fact that he is a brother and a partner in the tribulation. In other words, he is not detached from what the church is going through. He's going through a shared experience. He is also a partner in the tribulation. He's going through the very challenges that they're going through. He's writing from a shared experience. And then Jesus comes and gives him a series of, of visions. And, Jesus, and the Lord speaks to him. But what's more interesting to note here is that it's not only John who is writing from a shared experience, but Jesus is speaking from a shared experience. Because nobody knows persecution like Jesus. Nobody knows what it's like to be betrayed and despised and rejected by men like Jesus. He knows what it's like to be flogged and beaten and, and punched and his beard plucked from, from his face. He knows what it's like to be not only humbled but humiliated and stripped naked and crucified on a barbaric uh, barbaric uh, execution of the cross. He knows what it's like to be hated and despised by wicked men and he warned his church, he warned his disciples in John 15 and he said if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then the world would have loved you like its own. But you belong to me and I've chosen you out of the world and this is why the world hates you remember what I tell you a servant is no greater than his master if they persecuted me they are going to persecute you at some point in our walk with God we have to encounter some opposition at some point in our walk with God, we have to suffer some kind of trial or testing for what we believe in. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, those who will, will live godly will suffer persecution. And some of you know what I'm talking about. In your home, you are despised for what you believe in. At your work, you are despised for what you believe in. You cannot be a believer in today's time and be loved by the world. By the world. You have to face some kind of conflict. If there's no conflict during your whole existence for what you believe in, then you've got to re-examine your faith. And sometimes I wonder how I would fare under persecution. Sometimes I wonder how this generation of believers will fare under the fiery trials of persecution in our time. Yeah. To be a Christian in Rome under the imperial cult and to be a Christian in South Africa 2024 seem to be two very opposite notions. But perhaps the most interesting question to ask this morning is the question that Pastor Billy likes to ask. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Some of us, truth be told, would never probably have the privilege of dying for Jesus. 
But the question I want to ask you this morning is not whether you're willing to die for Christ. Are you willing to live for Him? He may never ask you to die for Him. And some of us may never have the courage and convictions that run that deep to die for Him. But do you have conviction to live for Him? So in verse 10 and 11, John hears the voice of Jesus like a trumpet instructing him to write what he sees and to send it to the seven churches. This would be the first of 12 instructions that Jesus would give John to write down what he sees. And this is the reason why I believe that John did not receive this vision in one sitting. I believe he received it in a series of visions over a period of time. The instruction was, was, was to send these, this letter and this vision to the seven churches, which is Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Titira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Isn't it interesting that Paul also wrote to seven churches? He wrote to Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. Now John in turn writes to seven churches. There were more than seven churches in Asia Minor when John wrote. Why these specific churches? If we had a working projector here, guys, I could show you that on, on the map of Asia Minor, the churches form a circular yeah. uh, picture. And the reason why I believe Christ addressed these seven churches is because they are representative of the whole area. That is actually speaking to every church. And what applies to the seven applies to every church in that time and in the ages to come, regardless of place, and location and then we have in verse 12 to 16 we have John now turning to to see the voice that he heard and when he turns to see the voice that he heard the first thing that he sees is that in the midst of the lampstands was the son of man The passage continues to explain the symbol of the lampstands by telling us, remember last week I said some symbols are explained yeah. in the text. Now Jesus explains the symbol of the lampstands and he says these seven lampstands are the church. So the first thing that John sees in the midst of the lampstands is Jesus in the midst of the lampstands. Is Jesus in the midst of the church. The church is going through its most testing time and the reality of the matter is that he is with them. Amen. He is not forsaken them. Yes. He's still amidst his church. He promised never to leave her nor forsake her. He promised that I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He's never 
left the church. I know there are many that criticize the church, lambast the church from every corner. There are many who have left the church and have want, and want nothing to do with the local church. But Jesus said, I'm going to rock with the church to the ends of the ages. And if you read further, these seven churches were not perfect churches. But he said, I'm going to rock with them. Because I made a promise that I will never leave them, nor forsake them. That I'm going to build my church. I take personal responsibility to build the church. I cannot understand in this time how sometimes even preachers have nothing good to say about the church of Christ. Imagine someone criticizing your wife the whole day. Imagine criticizing the bride of Christ the whole day. Yes, we know she's not perfect, but she's a work in progress. Some of you are looking at the false prophets and teachers and false believers and, and, and confusing them with the church. That's not the church. Don't mistake the goats for the sheep and the sheep for the goats. The fact of the matter is that Jesus is identified with the church with all her imperfections. And he loves his church. He loves his people. He's not forsaken his people. Come rain or sunshine, he is with the church. He was with every believer when they were thrown into the gladiator coliseums. He was with every Christian that was fed to lions. He was with every Christian burned at the stake. He was with every believer brutally executed. He's invested in his people and he's not ashamed to be identified with them. He loves the church. That's why he did not leave the church. He's true to his word. That's why he did not leave the church. He loves the church. Nobody will love the church like he loves the church. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. And yet, in as much as he loved the church, and in as much as the church is not perfect, we need to understand that some of the most sharpest rebukes for the church came from Jesus. Some of the churches have turned their backs on him. Some of the churches, one church was actually said to have left him outside of the door. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock, you've left me out. Let me in. His love for his church and his love for every one of us is so patient and so kind and so long-suffering that he still waits outside of the door of that church, still knocking. By that time, I would have packed my bags and left. But he's rocking with the church, amen. amen. He's with the church and he's with us through every season. Then in verses 11 through to 19, we see John instructed again to write the things which he saw and to send them to the seven churches. So very briefly, we're going to take a helicopter view, a snapshot of what Christ had to say to his church in chapter 2 to 3. 
Firstly, I want you to know this morning that each letter carries a similar pattern and the following elements. Number one, there was an address to the angel of the church. There is an ongoing debate as to what the reference to the angel meant. Some say it was the bishop or leader in that city of the church during the time. Some say it is actually an angel that was assigned to the church. But can you imagine if, if it was the case where an angel was assigned to the church and the city? That would just communicate the love that he has for the church. And the place and, and the unique uh, you know, a blessing he has over the church that he would assign an angel to it. But the debate is not resolved. The second element we'll find in each letter is Christ's relation and his self-revelation of himself to the church. He will either appear and say, I am the first and the last, or I am the one who holds the seven stars in my hand, or I am the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He has some self-revelation that he'll give to the church. Thirdly, we'll see that he commends and he praises the church. And in the fourth element, we see that he sometimes reproves the, the, the church. He rebukes the church. And then he calls the church to repentance to avoid a coming judgment. And yes, before he would judge the world, he would judge his church. Yeah. Because if judgment must begin, it must begin in the house of God. And then we see an exhortation to hear the message that the Spirit speaks to all the churches. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then he lastly gave a promise to all those who would overcome. Yeah. Not every element is in every letter to the church. For instance, the church of Smyrna, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and the church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, are not rebuked. And they are not summoned or called to repent. And then on the contrary, you have the church of Sardis, also in chapter 3, and Laodicea in chapter 3 from verses 14 to 22, that don't receive any compliments or praise from Jesus. They are only rebuked. So not every element is in every address or letter. The letters to the church, the seven letters, can actually be divided into three categories. And this is how we'll deal with them this morning. Firstly, the first three churches, there are three churches that have both strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. That's Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira. They have a mix of both good points and bad points, strengths and weaknesses. Things that Jesus praises about them and things that he corrects about them. Then the second category we have is of two churches who only have strengths, no weaknesses. So Smyrna and Philadelphia. And the last category of churches we have, the two churches, if you're doing the maths, only have weaknesses and they have no strengths. Lord, let this never be said of rebirth. Let us be a church with only strengths. <laughs> and the church says, Amen. We won't go into detail with every message, but we'll look at each church in each category and highlight a few points. So let's look at the first three churches that have both strengths and weaknesses. That's Ephesus, 
Pergamum, and Thyatira. They are not in, in order. When we look at these three churches carefully, and when we look at the problems of these three churches, we will discover that they fall into two main categories. Uh, these two main categories make up uh, what is truly a biblical church. It's a faithfulness to the Word of God and a community of believers that's characterized by love. So there's a commitment to doctrine, to teaching, to defending the gospel, and then all, there's, also, um, there's also the aspect of loving the community and, and there being harmony in the community of faith. Ephesus was strong in the first. They were strong proclaimers and defenders of the truth. Jesus said of them in chapter 3 verses 1 to 7, he praises them, he says, you have tested all those who call themselves apostles and that have been found to be liars. You were discerning. You have labored for my name's sake and you've not become weary. You have hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans were a breed of teachers who mixed Judaism, paganism, and the gospel in one biryani pot, uh, Sarisha. <laughs> Ephesus was strong in their faithfulness to the teachings of the gospel. They were on the forefront of the fight for the truth. But Jesus said, I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. Now, we usually interpret first love as a love for God. But Keener states that scholars today see that this love that Jesus is referencing is a love both for God and for one another. Osborne agrees and says the love Christ is discussing here is not just a love for Christ, but a love for one another. Is it possible that in their fight for the truth and in their love and pursuit of the gospel message that they became so distracted from loving one another? Yeah. And we get caught up in that trap often, don't we? Often we get caught up in the fight to be right. We fight for what we believe in. And we forget about the value of the relationship. All that matters to us is the point we're trying to get across. And sometimes we become also so preoccupied with our own spiritual growth and our own learning and our own knowledge and we forget that there is a larger community of faith that needs your caring, that needs your loving. And so sometimes winning an argument is not more important than winning a soul. We need to be mindful of how we love one another. And it's an often trait you see sometimes in churches and ministry where uh, they are so hard, fast focused on doctrine and teaching that they sometimes come across as judgmental and insensitive to what people are going through. And so we must never be known as a people that loves the truth, preaches the truth, teaches all the wonderful mysteries of the kingdom, but we don't know how to love one another and treat 
one another right. You know, like that old saying goes, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people don't care how much you know, you know, uh, they, they, they want to know how much you care. And so love is the ultimate apologetic. Love is our ultimate weapon. First Corinthians 13, 1 to 2. Many of you will be quoting this soon uh, when it's Valentine's Day. And Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all the mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so in chapter 2, 12 to 17, and from 18 to 29, we see two churches in that same category, Pergamum and Thyatira, who were weak in the first and strong in the second. They were weak in their defense and love for the word of God. But they were strong in their love for one another. With Pergamum, we see in verse 14 to 15 of chapter 2 that they, they even went as far as tolerating those who hold the doctrine of Balaam and those who held onto the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Then with Thyatira, in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said to, them, to, to this particular church, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. Your loving church. I know your service to one another. But I have this against you in verse 20. That you have allowed Jezebel to teach and seduce God's servants. They neglected their commitment to the truth of God's word. To knowing his truth, understanding his truth, and proclaiming and defending, defending his truth. And their love for the people caused them to become tolerant. Every time you are loving people at the expense of the truth of Scripture, you become tolerant of many compromises. Eventually, you'll never, you'll never, you'll start defending people's sinful behaviors. You'll start defending their lifestyles. You say, "Stop being judgmental, man. Just love. Just love everybody. Can't you just love?" Don't worry about, about that's Old Testament. That's, that was said back then. I'm sure it's out of context. Every Christian today is at a crossroads in society, whether you like it or not. And we live in a world that heralds tolerance as a virtue. The culture is accepting and affirming of everyone's beliefs and behavior from same-sex marriage to gender identity to it's fine to be a Christian and get stoned paralytic drunk. It's fine to be a Christian that gets high on weed. While society has become tolerant and affirming everybody's lifestyles, what we have not seen is that they become intolerant of the truth of God's word. Yeah. And intolerant of the Christian. Yeah. And your average Christian today doesn't want to offend anyone. Yeah. Because we are on the caravan of love. Come on. <laughs> every boy and every girl. How's it sound? 
journey on the caravan of love. <laughs> We're all on this caravan of love. Jump on. You know? Forget about that Old Testament stuff. Forget about the Bible. Two churches now we'll look at is the two churches with strengths and no weaknesses. We'll look at Smyrna and Philadelphia. What's interesting to note, and I, and I put this out on, on social media, if you guys follow the celebrity pastor on Facebook, <laughs> that these two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were the most poverty-stricken and persecuted churches. And it's strange that Jesus had nothing corrective or to reprove about them. I mean, today's model of success for the church is size, influence, facilities, budget. No, when the church has a big budget, the church is successful. But this, these churches had no budget. These churches were probably diminished in size. And so we have to re-examine our models for success. Yeah. Jesus had nothing chastening to say to them, only praise yeah. to Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews. They're slandering you, but I know that you are rich. To Philadelphia, he says in chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. And behold, I've set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. I know, I, I, I know that you, what you have and that it's, it's of little power. But you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We have to be careful how we judge success in the church and how we judge success in our lives. But the church that probably intrigued me the most between the two and between, between all seven churches is the church of Smyrna. Because if you read Christ's words to this church, in a nutshell, he's saying, I know that you're going through the most. You're going through a very difficult time. <laughs> Things are not going to change. They're going to get worse. But be faithful to death. Yeah. Imagine Jesus came and told you that. And says, Taylor, uh, what you're going through is it's not going to come to an end. You're going to go, you, it's going to get worse. But I'm with you. Yeah. Be faithful, even if it takes your life. What we need to understand about being a believer and a Christian that many of us don't take into account is that it's a privilege and it's an honor Amen. to suffer for Jesus. Yes. We have Muslims blowing themselves up for a false God, a false religious system. And we have Christians that get offended when there's no cook sisters of the church. Come on. 
What intrigued me about Smyrna is that this is the only city of seven that's still around today. Still in existence. In AD 155, persecution broke out in Smyrna, mostly due because of the large Jewish population. Remember I told you how the Jews instigated against the Christians? And when persecution broke out during this time period, the bishop of the church, which was a disciple, a personal disciple of John, his name was Polycarp. He was martyred. His death is the first recorded martyrdom in the post-New Testament church history. Not the first martyrdom. There were many. But, but it was the first recorded martyrdom. When they were looking for Polycarp, the proconsul got hold of two teenagers and managed to convince them to take them to Polycarp's house. When the proconsul and, and soldiers got there to Polycarp's house, he begged them to let him pray for an hour, which they did. He was around 86 years of age. They brought him before the proconsul and they said, You confess Caesar as Lord and deny Christ, or we'll throw you to the wild beast. His response, 86 years, and I quote, I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They further threatened to throw him to the wild beasts, and he replied, call them on. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and turn to evil. It would have been a different story if it was changing from evil to righteousness. But call them on. And what they did was, they burned him at the stake. And they drove a spear to finish him off. The message to Smyrna didn't seem hopeful. But Christ gave them a promise. That if they're faithful to death, he will give them the honor of reigning with him. The last two churches. And we can call this in closing. Last two churches we have are Sardis and Laodicea. The only two churches with no strengths. Jesus said nothing good about them. He had no praises for them. Only two sharp rebukes. These two churches were polar opposites of Smyrna and Philadelphia. These two churches were materialistic and worldly. They were culture-bound instead of counter-cultural. To Sardis, Christ wrote and spoke. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Ironically, Sardis had been the wealthiest capital of the Lydian Empire. It was once a military power that was feared by most men. They were once a wealthy city through trade and commerce. It was a city where coins were minted. It was a center for rugs and carpets and Persian rugs that were sold. It was an illustrious, wealthy city. They were also known for their famous warrior king, Crucis, not Crixus, Grimble, Crucis. Those of you who are watching Spartacus, you need to repent. <laughs> they once were ruled by a famous warrior king, Crucis, who fought against the king of Persia. But when the city had lost its influence and status after their battle with, with Persia, all that was left of Sardis was the reputation of their former glory. And all that they were, they, they were a shadow of their former glory. Yeah. And so Jesus comes to them and says, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. He's basically telling them, you fake. Yeah. You Fong Kong. <laughs> looks like you're alive, looks like a real Nike stupor. <laughs> Upon close examination, the tickers. Imagine Jesus comes to a church and says, this is a dead church. Imagine Jesus comes to you and says, you're the living dead. No, Jesus could never say that. He did. He called this church a dead, fake church. What an indictment. Oh Lord, may this never be held against Reba with a church in South Africa. May this indictment never be held against me personally. That the Lord will say, ah, this one, ah, fake. And lastly, Laodicea, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. This was a wealthy church. This was a mega church. Falwurt stated that about 35 years before John recorded this letter, Laodicea was actually destroyed the whole city by an earthquake. But they had so much wealth and resources that they rebuilt the city. That's how wealthy the city was. And Jesus had no compliment for them. He says in verses 15 to 16, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were rather cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out. This rebuke has a special impact and meaning for them. Because a few kilometers away in the city of Heriopolis, Laodicea got its water piped to a city. But by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Mm, yeah. And so Jesus uses this picture to tell them 
that you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. You're indifferent. You have the sense of apathy about your walk with me and your faith. Doesn't bother you at all whether you're hot or cold. You're a compromised church. You're playing the middle ground. You're too hot to be cold and too cold to be hot. And in trying to be both, you end up being nothing. And they heard the words, the abhorrent words of Jesus. I will vomit you out. Other words, you make me nah. <laughs> like now again, I tell the way he is a narmaka. <laughs> you make me nah. I get nauseated when I look upon you. No, 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 not, 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 not you, Ben. <laughs> Imagine Jesus saying this to a church of people. You turn my stomach. Now, what picture do we have of Jesus today, man? Jesus in a manger. Jesus only saying nice things. Little children come unto me, suffer not. Jesus was sharp. And nobody was a greater critic of him to the church and he was but you, you be careful when you criticize his church it's his wife <laughs> and nobody nobody loves this church more than Jesus so he has the authority to sharply speak into its life and what does he say in verse 20 we like to preach this in the openers and in evangelistic meetings we say behold I stand at the door and I knock Jesus is knocking at your heart's door this was not meant and spoken to the sinner it was spoken to a church the church has left him out of the door. But how loving and patient and long-suffering and merciful he is that he's still giving this church a chance to repent. That's the grace of God. Even though the church seems to be in a pretty bad place, Jesus comes along like a caring doctor. And says, this is the problem, it's a cancer, let me cut it out. And he's going to wound you to heal you. And so in conclusion again, <laughs> perhaps the greatest lessons I have learned from studying these seven churches is this. Christ knows the most about us and yet loves us the most. Christ knows what we're going through. He recognizes the good that we're doing. And He will reward us for our good works. It's a promise to all those who will overcome. Christ in His love for us will chastise us and correct us to bring us into a right standing with Him. His discipline and chastisement is proof of His love. No matter how far gone we are, He still calls us to come and fix us. To come and fix our cage. And here's the greatest lesson I've learned in all these seven lessons in a nutshell. That Christ gave a solution to all these diverse and complicated issues.
And what was the solution? It was found in one word. Repent. Repent. Lexham Bible Dictionary defines repentance as an event in which an individual attains a divinely provided new understanding of their behavior and feels compelled to change that behavior and begin a new relationship with God. Baker Dictionary defines repentance as a literal change from a sinful course of action against God. Repentance is not something we do once in our lives. We do it constantly and continuously. It's a continuous practice for us Christians. It's not a one-time experience. And God's love and God's mercy is shown in the fact that He gives us time to repent. He says, come and fix things with me. Here, even in chapter 2, verse 21, when he speaks to Titira, he said, I even gave Jezebel time to repent. And if he's willing to give Jezebel time to repent of a fornication, he's willing to give us time to repent. But don't put off repentance for tomorrow. Because tomorrow may never come. If there's things you need to fix in your relationship with God, do it quickly. Repent quickly. Because we don't know the hour, the time when He will come and demand our lives from us. Repent. Make things right with your family. Make things right with mother, father. Make things right with God. Repent. Have a change of mind about sin that you're involved in, engrossed in. Have a change of mind about yourself and have a change of mind about the Savior. He's compassionate and He's loving and He's calling out to you this morning. Can we stand? Thanks. And these emblems here this morning